Hey listeners, welcome back to Shades of Crime. Sometimes there's cases where someone commits crimes so intricate and specific that there is absolutely no way that this is their first time. While we tend to have a basic understanding of patterns of escalation and trends in the actions of a killer, in reality, we don't know as much as we would like to. These recognized patterns can often be spotted when the murders are properly investigated, but when people belong to an outcast group in society, investigations always seem to fall short. And that's how even some of the sloppiest killers can go on killing for so long. I mean, if you think about it, Breonna Taylor's killers, Jonathan Mattingly, Brett Hankinson, and Miles Cosgrove haven't been charged for killing her, and we know who they are. But they say hindsight is 2020. so is it possible that after 20 years, we may have found out who killed Glenda Morisot? Well, there hasn't been any convictions, but there certainly is one person who looks quite promising. So get ready, because things are about to get shady. was an indigenous woman belonging to the Sag King First Nations tribe. She grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba, where she lived in a home with her mother and stepfather. Glenda didn't live with her siblings, but she had a very close relationship with her two sisters and her brother. In 1991, Glenda was 19 and attending her final year of high school. At this time, Glenda was in a happy and loving relationship, and apparently was loving almost every aspect of her life. Glenda liked to treat every time she left the house like it was a night out. She would always be beautifully dressed and put together to the point that she never even left the house without her finger and toenails being painted the same color perfectly without a flaw and often to match the outfit she was wearing that day. Despite always dressing to the nines and always being prepared to go out with friends, Glenda enjoyed staying home and spending time with her family equally as much, and she really valued her time spent with her family. Glenda had a good group of friends, and she did often go spend time with them as well. She was extremely popular and loved by anyone who got the opportunity to get to know her. On July 17th of 1991, Glenda started getting ready for a night out. This wasn't a typical night out because she wasn't headed out to be with her school friends. Glenda was going out to the stock hotel to drink beer and play pool with her mother, stepfather, her sister Doreen, and her brother Mitchell. And she was very excited to get to spend time out with her family. Once she was done getting ready, Glenda headed out with her mother and stepfather to meet Mitchell and Doreen at the bar. When they arrived, the group laughed, played pool, and drank a fair bit of beer. 
Splenda had only recently turned 19, so it was exciting to finally be able to do this with her family. Mitchell ended up leaving before everyone else because he was ready to turn in for the night. By this time, as many 19-year-olds do when they go out, Glenda had had a fair bit to drink. She was truly having an amazing time out. Between 1 and 2 a.m., Doreen, who was sober, had decided to call it a night and decided to take Glenda home at the same time. Glenda had a decent amount of alcohol in her, so she was ready to crash for the night as well. Doreen took Glenda into her car and the two headed off to Glenda's home. When they arrived, it was pretty apparent that Glenda was drunk. Doreen ended up leaning her against the fence next to her home while she went to unlock the door so she could put Glenda to bed. When Doreen got the lock turned, she heard something going on behind her that made her turn around immediately. While Doreen was unlocking Glenda's home, she heard the distinct screech of tires behind her, so she turned around startled by the sound. When Doreen turned, she saw that Glenda was gone. She whipped around and saw her sister in the back seat of a dark old modeled full-size station wagon being driven by a middle-aged man. Within the time that it took Doreen to turn around and unlock Glenda's door, this man had driven up, snatched Glenda, thrown her in the back seat of his station wagon, and sped off. Doreen flew into an immediate panic. This all happened so fast, she didn't even have time to process it. She ended up running inside to call the police and report that Glenda had been abducted. When authorities arrived, Doreen gave them the information she had on the man who took her sister, and the search for Glenda began. Unfortunately, Glenda's abduction wasn't taken as seriously as it should have been. Hours went by, and the family didn't hear anything. Then days, then weeks, and still, not a word on where Glenda was. Then, on August 7th of 1991, there was a knock on Glenda's mother and stepfather's door. It was the police, and they only asked one thing. What color of nail polish was Glenda wearing the night she was taken? When Glenda's mother told the police the answer, she received the news that she had hoped she would never have to hear. Glenda's body had been found. A person walking past Winnipeg's St. Boniface scrapyard smelled a terrible odor, and when they went to investigate, they came upon a badly decomposed body of Glenda Morisot. Based on the state of her decomposition, it is believed that she was killed the same night that she was abducted. That night, the man who had taken Glenda took her to the scrapyard. He tied her hands behind her back and forced her out of the vehicle. The man then removed her pants and underwear. It's unclear if she was sexually assaulted due to her state of decomposition, but at some point, Glenda began to scream out for help. When she did this, her abductor picked up a cinder block and bashed her in the back of the head with it, delivering a fatal blow on the first strike. These details have been put together by investigators based on the evidence at the scene. Her skull was fractured, her cheekbones had fractured, and there were numerous other injuries to her head and face. This showed that she was likely beaten heavily before she had received the blow to the back of the head. It hasn't been openly stated anywhere that I could find how investigators knew she screamed out, but I have to assume that someone heard it and wrote it off at the time. 
This news struck Glenda's family hard. They were distraught over the loss of their beloved family member and furious with the man who did this to her. The family asked the police if they had any leads on who her murderer may be, but they said they had nothing. Glenda's family would periodically check in with the police to inquire about any progress in the case, but day after day, month after month, and year after year, if the authorities even answered them, they would tell the Morisos that there was nothing new in the case. From the beginning, Glenda's family felt that there was very little care being put into the searches for Glenda or for her killer. But this was a feeling that was shared by many Indigenous people in Canada. Indigenous women and girls go missing or are murdered in Canada at an alarming rate, and the number of these cases that are solved are astonishingly low. Indigenous women and girls make up about 10% of Canada's female population, but from 1991 until now, 16% of all murdered women are Indigenous. The rates of homicides against non-Indigenous women have been decreasing since 1991, but the murder rates of Indigenous women have remained the same. As of today, Indigenous women are almost six times more likely to be murdered than any other woman in Canada overall, but in the Northern Territories, these ratios are far worse. In the Yukon Territory, Indigenous women are 12 times more likely to be murdered than non-Indigenous women. And in the province of Saskatchewan, Indigenous women are 11 times more likely to be murdered than non-Indigenous women. Indigenous women are also more at risk everywhere they go. 88% of non-Indigenous women are murdered in their home in Canada and 1% of murders against non-Indigenous women are committed on a street, a road, or a highway. Meanwhile, 66% of murders against Indigenous women occur in their home, and 17% occur on a street, a road, or a highway. And if you think about it, that kind of makes sense with the Highway of Tears being an issue, and those type of murders aren't unique to BC. While the thought of being murdered in your own home is absolutely terrifying, it's easier to make certain protective measures in your own home. But for Indigenous women, murders happen much more frequently in environments that are much more difficult to defend yourself in. While the years went by, the prospect of Glenda's case ever being solved seemed less and less likely. But then one day, Glenda's family was watching the news and something caught their attention. Back in 2010, news was circulating about a man who had murdered two women near Tweed, Ontario. This was huge news because there was finally a face to the Tweed creeper. This man was the highly regarded Canadian Air Force pilot, Colonel Russell Williams. While at first this news seemed unrelated to the death of Glenda, That'll changed when word got out about the travel of Williams between multiple Canadian provinces. Back between 1990 and 1991, Williams was stationed at the Canadian Forces Base in Winnipeg. Investigators on the case also mentioned that there is a potential that Jessica Lloyd and Marie-France Camot were not his only two murder victims. Armed with this information, members of the Morisot family contacted authorities to ask if he could be linked to Glenda's murder. 
When they had contacted authorities, they essentially said that it was unlikely and that they were focused on the two main murders and two sexual assaults he was charged with at the time. But there was a nagging feeling amongst the family that this man had something to do with Glenda's death. Then, in 2014, the Morisos had another knock on their front door from authorities. They had come to tell the family that Glenda's case was being reopened with potential links to Russell Williams. This gave the family a glimmer of hope that finally some justice would be brought to Glenda. Sadly, there haven't been any updates since they were told that six years ago. If there was any evidence collected from the scene of Glenda's murder, it hasn't been made public, and if there simply isn't any, then it seems like linking Glenda's death to him will be nearly impossible. But there's always hope that one day Glenda's murderer will finally be captured. But until that day, her family remains haunted by Glenda's death, and the murder of her niece in Gatineau, Quebec back in 2009. The series called Taken covers cases of missing and murdered Aboriginal women and girls, and the series covered the murder of Glenda Morisot in episode 4 of season 2. If you can get access to the show, I recommend checking it out. It is an expose on missing and murdered Aboriginal women in Canada, intended to explain the severity and frequency of these happenings. There are a few more things that I would like to tell you about in terms of Indigenous women. Women on the Sag King Reservation near Winnipeg are disproportionately impacted by violent crimes against Indigenous women in Manitoba. There are six unsolved murders of women belonging to this tribe, and their rate of unsolved murders is the highest in the whole province. If you want more information on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada, there are multiple sources that are highly valuable. For podcasts related to this topic, check out the Truth Sharing Podcast. This podcast is described as giving life to the truth. During the podcast, five Indigenous communities across Canada are visited and members of the community are asked about the impact that missing and murdered Aboriginal women have on them, and telling the stories of families that have been affected by these cases, and how they are attempting to heal from the generations of damage inflicted upon them. On September 1st of 2016, the Government of Canada began its National Inquiry into the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women in Canada, and since then, testimonies on the profound impacts these cases have had on Indigenous communities have been collected. Many of these inquiries have public access through the Government of Canada website and are very important in understanding what has now been recognized as a genocide of Canada's original residents. I will be providing resources for further information on missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada on the Shades of Crime discussion forum on Facebook, and I will link the information on my Instagram as well. With the recognition that genocide was committed on Indigenous communities, the healing process can begin. But the only way things can get better is if we all work together to make it that way. Educate yourselves, and share what you've learned to boost the voices that have been silenced for far too long. In the last episode, I claimed that I would tell you about the other potential victims of Russell Williams, and I will. But it'll have to wait until next week. I already told you about the murder of Kimber Lucas, another indigenous woman who may have fallen victim to Williams. 
but the murders of Shelley Connors, Andrea King, and Kathleen McVicar will be told in the next episode. And trust me, you won't want to miss those cases. So tune in next week for the final episode on the potential victims of Russell Williams. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Shades of Crime. Our theme music is by Shelly Musso. This episode was written and researched by me. The sources for this episode and all of our other episodes can be found on our blog, www.shadesofcrime.ca. Shades of Crime can be found on almost any platform where you listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram at Shades of Crime Podcast. If you like what you hear, could you please rate and review Shades of Crime on Apple Podcasts? It's a fantastic way to get the word out about this show. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or if you would like to request a case, email us at shadesofcrime at gmail.com. That's all for this week, and I'll see you in the next episode. (laughs) 